Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. This is your host, Walker Near. I want to thank you up front for sharing the, the podcast as you have. Uh, the audience continues to grow, and I really appreciate you guys taking the time to tell people about it or share it on social media or whatever it is that you're doing to help. Um, it really does mean a lot to me. I also want to thank Misha Zarin's up front, as always, for providing the music for the Walk Show. Uh, Misha continues to write new music, and it is just awesome. Uh, in the show notes uh, for the episodes, you will find a link to Misha's music website. Uh, and if you haven't ever checked it out, I highly recommend that you do. He's got uh, a lot of songs out there, and, and most of them have been, if not all of them, have been made available to me to, to use here on the Walk Show. Uh, and I try and mix it up a bit. Um, I, I typically, you know, he has some that have vocals, and I don't usually use all of those throughout the show, just because that can get a little confusing <laughs> hearing the vocals. But either way, um, thank you, Misha, very much for, for providing the music. I also want to mention my other podcast, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is co-hosted by me and Brett Lindley. Pick Up Your Sticks is a gaming podcast where we talk about why gaming matters. Uh, so we do talk about current events and news and reviews and things like that in gaming, but we also try and just explore why gaming is significant to us and, and emotional connections that, that we have to it or maybe some impacts that it's had, you know, not just on us personally, but also on you know, culture at large. Um, one other thing I'd like to mention is the Ozarks Food Harvest. The Ozarks Food Harvest is a food bank here in southwest Missouri uh, that helps provide meals to, to families in need. Um, if you do not live in southwest Missouri, then I highly encourage you to seek out the food bank in your area uh, and, and see if you can help. Uh, if you are in southwest Missouri, then I, I can't recommend enough that you uh, vol volunteer, donate, you know, whatever whatever is, is available to you. Uh, or at the very least, just tell other people about Ozark's Food Harvest. Um, food insecurity is a very real problem, and it, it's something that we can do something about if we if we take action. Today's episode is kind of a book review. Um, you may be familiar, I, I've done a couple of kind of book review episodes before. Today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the book Talking to Strangers by author Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell is probably just my favorite author. I think Gladwell has a total of six books now, maybe seven. One of the books he has is called What the Dog Saw, and that's actually a collection of articles that he wrote for I believe the New Yorker, because he either he still may be, but at least used to be a staff writer for the New Yorker magazine. Um, but yeah, Gladwell. He also has a podcast called Revisionist History, and I guess that's really maybe maybe the best way to to describe kind of his approach to to ideas is he he kind of tries to look at popular concepts or popular um, truths <laughs> that, that people hold. And then tries to look into them and see is that really is that really what it what's there? Um, like he has one book called Outliers: The Story of Success, and it 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 looks at this phenomenon of massive success and how people think that it's this driven by this bootstraps mentality and that success is um, comes from exclusively from hard work and from uh, from talent and and whatever and it's it's a, a wide variety of things actually that play into it and he explores that um it it is hard work and it is talent and it's also a little bit of luck and opportunity right um now some people say that opportunity or excuse me that luck is when when opportunity 
and preparation kind of meet. Um, but, you know, that's true, but there's also, you know, like, for example, in, in the Outliers book, he talks about how the all the Silicon Valley leaders, at least of the previous generation, so not like, not the new tech people in, in Silicon Valley, like the Zuckerbergs and, the you know, the Jack Dorsey who runs Twitter and, and stuff like that, not them, but like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and, you know, the that era of people. And the very unique opportunities that they were afforded as children because of the families that they were in, the area of the country that they lived in, and just the access to stuff that they had at the time they had it. Um, it's not something that really could have been done if all of those factors hadn't lined up. And and, and, and this is not an episode that's a book review of, of Outliers, but I just wanted to provide an example of kind of what Gladwell is all about. Um, and so this new book that, that's just its most recent one called Talking to Strangers is not about social anxiety of meeting new people, although I would probably benefit from that because despite having a podcast and <laughs> arguably talking to strangers all the time, I uh, I don't actually have to meet any of you <laughs> that may be listening, right? So I don't know if you like what I'm saying or not other than if you continue to listen. Um Talking to strangers is is really an exploration of how we get so wrong interactions with strangers, how we misperceive what's happening, whether that be for for better or worse. Um, and so the 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 situation that that kind of inspired him to write this book is the situation from I think it was twenty sixteen, but I I I. <laughs> I probably should be better prepared and have looked that up, right? But whatever, it was within the last 10 years at some point, so maybe not even quite as recent as 2016, but sometime in the last several years, there was a woman named Sandra Blonde who um, had moved to Texas and had no criminal history or anything, is not, is not, is not a criminal. But she gets pulled over, and the officer... She, she gets pulled over for not signaling when changing lanes, except that she changed lanes to get out of the way of the cop who sped up behind her with his lights on because she didn't think that it was him that was pulling her over, right? And, and and he pulls up behind her, and then she... I guess he didn't have his lights on yet, actually. He just speeds up behind her, so she switches lanes to get out of the way, and that's what he pulls her over for because she didn't use her signal. And the cop very much believes that she is suspicious and that something is is amiss and they go back and forth arguing and 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 she's she's very displeased with him but i mean i don't know she's a person right she has the right to be displeased um and the situation just kind of escalates until eventually he ends up ripping her out of her car and then you know they take her to jail and, and within about a week she commits suicide um and everyone looked at it as just another example in the United States of of police being, you know, like it's just a, here it is a bad cop, right? It's this cop that is abusing his power or is that is going overboard um, and has has you know ruined this person's life. And Malcolm Gladwell just didn't feel like that was enough of an explanation. And and, and also, um, you know, the cop is is white and the the Sandra Blonde is black, and so. It's the racially charged stuff that that, that is very much a, a problem in the United States. But Malcolm Gladwell just didn't think that that answer was sufficient, and so he wanted to investigate it a bit further. 
Um, so I'm going to go through kind of a, a, I don't know, on the one hand, a somewhat brief overview or review of the book. Um, because there's a lot of content in it. And so I, I highly recommend if you're interested, you know, after hearing this, that you go and, and grab the book and read it. I, it's a fascinating read and, and I'm I'm just skimming the surface. I mean, I'm gonna hit try and hit kind of some of the major points that I took from it, uh, but there's so much more context. And if you're not someone who finds yourself reading a lot, um, but obviously you like to listen to audio things because you're listening to this right now, Gladwell actually, uh, does the audiobook version of, of his own book. So he actually reads, uh, you know, the book f for the audiobooks, and he's got a great voice. Um, but beyond him just having a great voice, I've heard that with this book, at least, there's a lot of times where he references like court cases or different interviews that happened and, and that sort of thing. And in the audiobook, you know, in the, in the, the written book, you just read these things, right? He explains it and, 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 and you just read these transcripts and stuff like that. But in the audiobook, when possible, it actually plays clips of the people he's talking about saying this stuff and plays news reports that are relevant to, to what he's describing. And I don't know, so it's kind of a more enhanced media experience. It's not just someone reading to you, but it's in beyond that, you know, a little more expansive. Um, but either way, I just wanted to, to kind of set the stage for who Malcolm Gladwell is and, and what Talking to Strangers is about. One other thing I want to mention before we get into the episode is just that some of the subject matter that I cover here is is pretty dark uh, and, and kind of heavy. It, it deals with, with different crimes that have happened um, and, you know, various ways that <laughs> the, the people have passed away. I'm trying to be as euphemistic as I, as I can here. Um, but just know that there is some, some pretty, um, yeah, some pretty serious subject matter discussed in the book and, and that I, you know, talk about through this episode. Um, so yeah, just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Uh, but yeah, without further ado, let's get on with the episode. So like I described in the intro, the, the premise... Uh, or at least the opening, the premise of the book according to Gladwell, but also the opening chapter deals with the Sandra Blonde case. So it kind of walks the reader through what happened there. Um, and then it kind of gets into some different concepts that Gladwell has kind of uncovered or, or pieced together that, that lead to why people are bad at, um, at understanding strangers. And, you know, in the case of the Sandra Blonde, right, like she's actually not doing anything wrong but this cop, because of of various factors, thinks that she is right, and and then there's other cases um, where people assume that someone is a, a good actor when they're actually a bad actor, right? And so it can go both ways. It's not just about someone lying to you or tricking you. It can also be that you think that someone is doing something wrong when when they're not really. So one of the first examples he gets into is um, is actually about Cuban spies and about how towards the end of the Cold War, um, it was revealed that basically every U.S. secret agent that was working in Cuba was actually a double agent really working for Cuba. Um, there was a really high-ranking Cuban 
official that, that turned himself in and revealed all of this these these Cuban secrets to the, the CIA. But, I mean, this has been going on for years at this point, right? So it's not like he, he really saved them from anything. Instead, he really just revealed to them that they had been completely duped for a very long time. And, again, there's, you know, and I won't say this each time I tell a story, but just to be clear... There is a ton of information that Gladwell has about this that's deeply interesting. He has different names of people and the conversations that they had. And so, again, all, all of that I'm going to talk about is, is going to be tra- kind of more of an overview as opposed to specifically all the content of, of each chapter, or each idea. But anyway, so it was this high-ranking Cuban official that had, um, that had betrayed Cuba <laughs> to tell the United States that actually all of their spies were betraying. And that in and of itself is interesting because the CIA and spies in general are a group of people who you would think would be exceptionally talented at reading people, right? That's their whole job, um, but but they're not. And, and it goes on to explain, and this isn't really about the talking to strangers part, but just, you know, it, it, the embarrassment was so significant, um, the, the depth of it was so significant that, that Fidel Castro learns that this high-ranking spy of his has has outed everyone and so he releases an 11-part documentary on cuban television uh called the cia's war against cuba Uh, that's not i mean the name is in spanish but that's what it translates to and the cuban intelligence agency it turned out had filmed everything the cia had done in cuba for at least 10 years um the video outed the u.s agents by name revealed all the cia gadgets that they had meeting places that they had. I mean, it, it, you know, showed park benches that they used to meet. It uncovered the different shirt color patterns, like they would wear different colors of shirts to indicate different things. And again, it's all these, you know, sophisticated schemes to communicate, but because all the agents were double agents, Cuba actually knew about all of it (laughs) the whole time. Um, it, it just really illustrates that, again, the CIA, which is, you know, arguably the most sophisticated organization at reading and, and, and figuring people out, you know, in the world, uh, is actually not, not very sophisticated at all and is, is just as susceptible to being duped as the, as the rest of us. Um, the next story he tells is actually about this famous British diplomat named Nivelle Chamberlain, who went and met with Hitler prior to World War II starting. Um, there was a lot of concern about who Hitler was and, and what he might be interested in doing. And so this Nivelle Chamberlain was, again, a very famous diplomat in Britain. And, and, and so he was tasked with going and kind of getting a read on Hitler. And so he goes and the, the conclusion that he draws is that Hitler is just excited, um, that he's not insane, that he's, he's just excited, right? And, and really, obviously, he was very wrong. And he went and met with him two or three times. Um, but it was the personal interactions that he had, right? And the, and the pleasantries that they exchanged and the, the eye contact that they made. And, you know, just whatever little things people think indicate to them that they can read a person um, happened in these interactions. Now, interestingly, Winston Churchill, right, never met Hitler, and just read his book, and he was anti-Hitler the entire time, right? So, in this example, really, 
Winston Churchill has a better understanding of Hitler having never met him than this other guy does who, who has met him. And the point of, of, of that example and, and kind of the Cuban spy example, which there's some more that, that link to this, but it's this idea of, um, it's this idea of the default to truth. Um, defaulting to truth is kind of a human tendency. It's something that, that seems to be just biologically programmed, frankly, which makes sense because in order for society to function, um, we kind of have to trust each other, right? And and yes, there are safeguards uh, in place and, and there are things that people wouldn't trust, but it just turns out that on the whole, most people are telling the truth most of the time and most people interact that way. Like when you go to the store and, and buy a coffee, right? It's unlikely that you're you're doing all of the specific math to make sure that the price is exactly right. I mean, you might know that the coffee is supposed to be five bucks, and so then when the when the cashier comes back and says it's five dollars and seventy cents or whatever, you, you assume that sounds right, you know, because of of tax or whatever. Now, if they came back and said twenty dollars, then you would know that something was was incorrect. But even then, you probably still wouldn't assume that the person was trying to be deceitful as much as that just some error had been made, right? Um, but very rarely are we actually sitting there and doing the specific calculations of what's the tax rate and is that the correct amount? You know, we just we just trust them and we just default to truth and, and trust them. Um, and again, that you know, buying coffee is a very easy, silly <laughs> kind of example. Um, but it's it's just the way that the world you know is is built. The problem is is that the default to truth is is tough when when someone betrays you because if you always default to truth, then that leaves you vulnerable to being betrayed. And so, unfortunately, it's almost like there's just a this this inherent risk baked into the way that we operate you know within society. Um, the next story he goes on to share that, that illustrates this is, um, this Cuban spy that, that was, uh, uh, she was actually an American person who again was, but she didn't live and work in Cuba. She lived in the United States and she rose to the ranks of the CIA yet again to become the, the number one Cuban analyst, um, and it turns out she was actually working for them the whole time too. And there were people throughout this this woman's career who were a bit put off by what she was doing um, and who thought maybe something suspicious was going on. But they never thought that she was a spy, right? Like they thought that what was suspicious that maybe she was just somewhat incompetent, you know, that maybe she wasn't actually as good as, as some of the other folks thought seemed to think she was. But no one really jumped to the conclusion that she was actually a spy. And it turns out she was the entire time and, and eventually was, was outed to be. Um, the next thing Gladwell looks at is Bernie Madoff. So Bernie Madoff pulls off the greatest Ponzi scheme in history, except that there's not any sophistication to it, right? The way that the Madoff thing worked, for anyone who's not aware, is he had all these wealthy investors who he would raise money from and say, hey, invest with me and I'll get you great returns. So they give him capital. And then he's not actually investing it. He's just taking that money and living off of it. And then whenever they want to pay out, which is never their whole sum, right? 
He just has to be able to pay them back out. And so as long as he can continually generate new money, then he always can pay people out when they want it, and no one ever suspects anything. In fact, the only reason that that Madoff ultimately was caught was because the 2008 financial crisis happened, and his investors came to get their money because they wanted to get their money out of the market, and then he couldn't pay them, and then it was revealed. Um, Gladwell shares a story about this this investment firm that is ran by like MIT graduates who, you know, build these really complicated algorithms and, and totally destroy the market in terms of their performance. I mean, they just do awesome. And they ended up at one point with some Madoff shares, right? And, and they looked at it and they were confused because his work didn't actually hold up. Or I shouldn't say his work, his returns didn't really hold up under scrutiny. It didn't really make sense how he made the money that he said he was making, right? Because he's filing all these false transactions and things to make it look like he's doing something. But even they, this really sophisticated investment group that knows that it doesn't make sense, doesn't think that he's just running a Ponzi scheme, right? They don't think that he's just outright lying because it's that's too far of a leap, right? And so instead... Instead, what they end up doing, they don't even take their money out. They end up leaving it because it's not a substantial amount that they have. And they're interested to see what will happen with it, right? But again, never really suspecting that, that this is who he is. Now, there is one guy that Gladwell shares about. I, I don't know exactly how to say the name. It's like Henry or Harry Markopoulos, something close to that. And that guy had actually been suspicious of Madoff since the the like late 80s. Um but no one would listen to him. Everyone thought of him to be this paranoid, crazy person and didn't listen to anything he talked about, really. He was paranoid about everything. And that's kind of Gladwell's point about in society, we default to truth. And if you don't default to truth, then you're this Markopolis guy who's this outcast, right? Who's not, <laughs> who no one wants to listen to because he thinks everything is a scheme. He thinks everyone's out to get him. And sometimes he's right, you know? Um, but a society of, of just paranoid people at all times, again, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Um, and so anyway, so I, I personally am very fascinated by the Madoff thing. Um, I, I just, it's just so interesting because it's this huge scheme that, again, has no complexity to it. And to be clear, the investors he had were not, you know, blue-collar workers investing in their 401k or something. These are all sophisticated investors, really, really, really wealthy people, um, like that investment firm, you know, with the MIT people that I described. And that's who he's taking advantage of. So it's not even like he's robbing the common man who doesn't understand how the stock market works and taking advantage of them in some way. It's, it's, it's people who should understand what's happening, but, but they don't. They defaulted to truth. Um, the next thing that, that he looks at is the case of Jerry Sandusky. Um, Jerry Sandusky is a former Penn State football assistant who was accused of and, and convicted of sexually assaulting uh, several minors. Um, there were many instances in that scenario that should have raised red flags for people. And some people even did have some suspicions but again, they didn't think that he was really capable of that, ultimately, because they knew him otherwise. And otherwise, he's not some 
cruel, violent monster, right? He's just, he's, he's you know, he's a coach with, with these kids, right? And and they just didn't believe it. And, and then he moves on from that to look at the case of Larry uh, Nasser or Nassar. I'm not sure exactly how you say the last name. Should have got the audio book, I guess. Um, who was the women's gymnastics doctor, the, the United U.S. women's gymnastics team doctor, that was really basically molesting girls for, for years and years and years. And what he was doing was it wasn't, he wasn't, and I, you know, I don't mean to be too graphic here, but he wasn't, um, he wasn't just like outright like, you know, assaulting them in the way that you would typically think of, a, of an assault in that way. What he was doing was he was, he was doing doctor things. <laughs> that sounds so stupid, doctor stuff. Basically, like, you know, the girls have uh, a pain in like their, their hip or their leg or something, right? And so then he is doing these different techniques that he says are to help them, except that the techniques involve them, involve him touching them in inappropriate ways and inappropriate places and, and doing things that, that had nothing to do with that, right? But this guy also works for the University of Michigan, and he's a well-liked and well-respected person by, you know, the community at large. Um, he's very, held in a high prestige, Right. And some of these kids even even reported to their parents that they thought something that that what had happened wasn't right. And, and the parents are in the room <laughs> while this is happening, right? But but again, he's not. There, there's not any like. There's no violence or anything associated with it, right? So so no one's clear that that he's doing something wrong, and and they don't necessarily understand the techniques he's doing, but. Uh, they're not, you know, these parents aren't doctors, right? And so the kids would tell tell their parents, like, I don't know if that made sense and whatever. And the parents, unfortunately, were dismissive of it. They, you know, they they kind of they kind of default to truth. And 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 what Gladwell kind of comes to the conclusion of is that the default to truth is is usually pretty great until we're faced with two alternatives, and those alternatives is is one is very likely. Right, and one is is nearly impossible to imagine. So, like the case with this doctor, or even with the football coach, it's likely you know it's easy to understand that the kids just don't understand what's happening, or um, people are reading too much into to these you know these 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 things. When when it's really hard to imagine that this guy is actually. <laughs> doing inappropriate things with kids while their parents are in the same room because the audacity of that is just so is just so insane right it's just so crazy but but that's actually what happened and with with Larry Nassar I mean there was a, a girl who brought forth all sorts of evidence years of of logs from conversations with her therapist where she had talked about it um all all sorts of evidence and and no one no one would believe her and and in fact there were other victims of this gymnastics coach who uh, didn't who didn't think that he had done anything wrong. Like even though they were part of again the group of people who was actually impacted by him, they didn't see it that way, and, and they actually came to this guy's defense and accused these other girls, you know, now women, 
of of misunderstanding and and trying to assault this good man and you know for money or fame or or whatever the case may be and it wasn't until the authorities actually discovered that he had loads and loads of um of of videos and images on his computer of assaulting you know kids being being hurt and stuff that that then everyone kind of started to come around and realize that this guy is actually this monster right um so the the point of this conversation isn't isn't to to scare you i realize this is some heavy stuff and some dark stuff it's not to say that the default to truth doesn't work and that any time <laughs> anyone does anything that's even remotely suspicious that you should immediately assume the very worst about them right it's more just to 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 understand that you don't know people all that well and you know yeah you know you're really close friends and your family and stuff like that although even those people can be fooled too right um but especially if it's someone that you just have kind of a cursory relationship with you don't really know them and it you should you know you should just kind of take a step back from what you think is concrete information and you know and and be willing to explore other ideas and explore other other possibilities um because when we just insist on defaulting to truth no matter what um it it can lead to some pretty some pretty significant consequences So the the next topic that the book goes on to explain is a concept known as transparency. So transparency is this idea that and I mean this is so commonplace in you know at least in American society I assume around the world but but certainly here that people's body language um is always in line with what they are thinking or feeling in that moment, right? So, and everyone thinks that they're an expert at it. Everyone. Everyone believes that they can read other people very, very well. Um, and that if they can't, it's because the other person tricked them in some some horrendous way or something, right? But they believe that they are they're able to read body language. And, and this... This is, and it's not just everyday people, though, right? It's also people like judges. So he has an example where he talks about, he looks at judges, and, and you know, judges are people, and, and these are judges he, that he's looking at that are, are setting bail and determining if a if a, a defendant should should get bail or if they should be denied bail, and you know what the terms of that will be. So these people are making decisions about character professionally all day long that's what they do that's their that's their profession right so the ju- the, the what they do is they look at a, a, a sec- segment of data and I don't remember exactly the number of cases you'll you'll discover it when you read the book or, or listen to the audiobook <laughs> but they look at a, a significant amount of data where 
they look at, at cases where the judges let the people go, right? They said, yeah, you can have bail. And then how often were they right? How often did the people either not come back to court or commit another crime, you know, while they were out on bail? And it turns out that the judges are a little better than, than half, right? They're, I think it's like 53, 54%, something like that. They're a little better than half. Which is not good, because 50% is a coin flip, right? So we, we could just not have judges deciding bail and just flip a coin and be almost as accurate. Now, it is fair that judges are a little better than a coin flip. And to be clear, this is not... The point of this is not to say that judges are widely, wildly incompetent people or that judges are shamming us or something. The point is that no one is as good at this as they think they are, even people who dedicate their lives to doing this. And the reason for that is because people do not always act physically how they think or feel internally. So Gladwell uses Friends, the, the, the sitcom, as an example that I thought was great. Um, well, I mean, the show's good, but <laughs> his example is, is really interesting. And that is that you can watch an episode of Friends basically entirely on mute and understand the premise of, of the show. Now, you're not going to understand you know, exactly the subject matter that they're discussing or something. That would be, you know, impossible, of course. Um, but when a character in Friends is mad, you can tell that they're mad. When they're happy, they look happy. When they're surprised, they look surprised. And so if you watch an episode on mute, you can very easily follow the progression of what the characters are going through because their transparency is perfect. But that's because it's a TV show <laughs> with professional actors who have practiced and are trained to be transparent and to have this transparency, right? So the unfortunate part of this, though, is that people think that that translates to the rest of, of life, to the rest of existence, and it doesn't. Um, a, a famous case that, that Gladwell uses to examine or to illustrate this is Amanda Knox. So Amanda Knox was this American girl who was living overseas in Italy and one of her roommates uh, was was murdered and Amanda Knox ultimately was charged with it um, and I think actually briefly convicted and went to, to prison in Italy for a while and ultimately it was overturned and she escaped you know that fate but the reason that she was convicted there was no evidence actually against her but she doesn't act the way that people thought she should act. For example, one example was that the one of the investigators came over to the apartment after the incident had happened, and he had Amanda put on these little um, covers over her shoes so that she wouldn't create fresh shoe prints or whatever in the in the place, right, or whatever the case is, wouldn't track stuff around with her shoes. And so she puts these little shoe covers on and then she kind of does like a little like like a twirl and like like a curtsy almost um, as if she's like showing off a new outfit or something. Right. And it's just kind of a playful gesture that she's doing. And the cop thinks or the investigator, I don't know if they were a cop or not, but the investigator thinks that this is very bizarre because why would someone who's just been involved right like and, and just by living in this the same home where their roommate was murdered how could they then you know within a day or two be doing some cutesy little joke 
when when they're in interacting with the investigator who's you know who's having them put these little feet covers on their shoes right like it doesn't make sense that's pretty weird now i would agree with that that is pretty weird but it doesn't make amanda knox a murderer and she wasn't right and there was actually this a lot of other evidence that pointed to to another you know another individual but that was largely ignored because people were so off put by her lack of transparency because she is not acting like someone who is traumatized by this event which then must make her guilty right because if she's not traumatized by it that means that she's not surprised by it or that she's not scared of it so then she must be involved in it and it's it, you know it turns out just to not be not be the case um so the the things that we're dealing with are are the default to truth which again is actually just fundamental to how society operates um but has baked into it vulnerabilities to being to being deceived um but the alternative to that is not tenable because you can't just assume that everyone's trying to to get you all the time or you'll never go anywhere and nothing will ever be achieved or accomplished you'll never and when I say that, I don't even mean some great feat of business or something. I just mean you won't have relationships with anybody, right? Relationships are based on trust, right? And while a relationship can over time demonstrate that that trust is warranted, in the end, you can you just there's still a, a bit of faith in in trust, right? And there that's just kind of the way that it, it's it's designed <laughs> as an idea. And then the other thing, the second thing that we're dealing with is this issue of transparency where everyone thinks that they are these masterful readers of body language and everyone thinks that everyone else involuntarily expresses themselves physically in a way that aligns with what they're thinking or feeling internally, right? So it's not that they would assume that someone not being transparent is like... They don't assume that the transparency is a skill. They think that the transparency is is just a natural thing, and it's just not for everyone. Some people are very transparent. Um, I am <laughs> accused often of wearing my emotions on my sleeve and, and being that way. But it, it's not like some virtue or something, right? It just happens to be the way that I kind of operate. I'm not very good at hiding how I think or feel in that moment. But like I don't know that Amanda Knox is trying to hide her or hide her feelings in in that scenario, right? She just she's not me. She's not you. She thinks differently. People are individuals, right? Um. So he goes on after this to talk about Brock Turner. Uh, Brock Turner was a um, a student at Stanford who was caught assaulting a girl who was passed out behind a bar and was subsequently um, went to trial for it. Brock Turner went to trial for it and was only sentenced to six months um, because the judge thought that prison would be too hard on Brock Turner, who's a, a white, well-to-do kid um, who was on the swim team and, and whatever. Now, I personally... Uh, I'm, I'm very familiar with this Brock Turner story. I remember when it came out, and it's, some, it's a name that I've never forgotten. And so I was glad that it was in this book, because I'm glad that even though Brock Turner only did six months of, of prison time for what he did, 
I, I'm glad that his name will forever be attached to this and that his name is not being forgotten and that there are books by very famous authors like Malcolm Gladwell being written that that go into great detail about Brock Turner and his, you know, his crime. Um, but Gladwell, again, examines the transparency problem, right? Because Brock Turner didn't just encounter this girl passed out behind the bar he and actually i don't know that it was a bar i guess it was it was an alley somewhere but but any where the actual assault eventually took place but they were actually together at a party right at a frat party earlier in the evening and they left there together and then eventually wound up in this alley where he assaulted her and she was passed out and other people came and found them, and, and he tried to run away, and then they caught him, and, and you know that's how he was eventually apprehended by the police and all that. So, um, Gladwell, what Gladwell really explores in, in that chapter is the the misperceived transparency on both part both parties. Right, the Brock Turner claims that he thought one set of things were true that that there were that there was consent and that that there was one set of parameters that were true and this this girl thought that none of that was was the case right but beyond that they were also both very very drunk and gladwell is in no way blaming you know it's not this isn't victim blaming he's not saying it's the girl's fault in any way um but what he does say is that these problems are greatly exacerbated by alcohol and that you know like the Brock Turner case is 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 looked at as a case of like here's a guy who's a predator and he did this thing and that may be true however there's also a significant amount of alcohol consumption that goes on with this and and there's not more serious conversations about alcohol consumption and about what it does to a person's brain and what it does to a person's capacity to understand circumstances. And if we don't start having more serious conversations about that and we don't look at that in a more serious way, we're going to be doomed to have these kinds of things happen again. History is going to repeat itself. Um, and I think Gladwell makes some, some really interesting points with that. The next story that Gladwell goes on to talk about is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, KSM, who was a very famous Al-Qaeda uh, general and was was detained and, and subsequently you know, subjected to torture at Guantanamo Bay. Um, and the, the chapter or, or section of the book really explores great detail of the work that went into this enhanced interrogation, right? And not, not just with this particular prisoner, but it goes into how they develop these methods and how they test them out on, on them themselves, these American officials and how, I mean, they go and look at soldiers that have to undergo basically these drills where they, they simulate being captured and detained and being subjected to these quote unquote enhanced interrogation methods. Um, and they, they they really spend a lot of time trying to understand it. Well, so with KSM, the the the, the prisoner I'd mentioned, they really really want him to give them information because he's a high ranking Al Qaeda 
general again, right? And this is post 9-11. So it's a very, very critical for them to get information from him, right? So they subject him to these enhanced interrogation methods, and he eventually... he does, It takes a long time for him to break. And he eventually does, and he eventually gives them information, except that he basically just confesses to every crime imaginable, right? Like, it, he, he claims that they plotted to blow up the Panama Canal. Um, he, he makes all sorts of wild claims that might be true, but the point that Gladwell is, is makes in this is simply the the, I, the 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 fact that again we can't really ever truly know a stranger, and the more um, eagerly we pursue trying to demand the truth out of them, especially when once you get into the point of inflicting trauma upon them to try and coerce them into to t to telling you whatever it is you want to know the less reliable that information becomes, right? I mean, this is why torture doesn't work. Uh, you know, our president <laughs> thinks that it does, you know, because it's terrifying, right? But the problem is, is that it's so terrifying that people will say anything to make it stop happening. And now the information you're getting isn't legitimate. So now it was valueless anyway, and you're a torturer now, which is really, really horrible. Um, one of the examples he gives, though, is that Gladwell gives in the book is, you know, they have these soldiers who are living normal lives as citizens. They go through this drill where they're detained and then subjected to waterboarding or uh, sleep deprivation or what, again, these other enhanced interrogation, you know, torture methods. Um, because that's probably what will happen to them if they get caught, is the idea. So they need to be exposed to it to understand what it's going to be like so they can try and hold out for longer. And again, these are soldiers, right? It's not, it's not just common people off this. It's not me <laughs> who's, who's not a violent person, who's not some rugged person, right? It's soldiers. And, and a ton of these people are, are, are broken during this exercise. And they know it's an exercise. They don't think they've actually been captured by the enemy. They're on a military base. But it doesn't matter. Like That's how impactful these, these methods are, these techniques are. And so it, 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 break, it can break anyone. And, and then what happens is, is they then go around and talk to these soldiers that underwent this, you know, a few hours after, it, you know, they're done with the drill. And the soldiers can't even identify the people who administered the, the drill to them. They can't identify the faces that they just saw a few hours ago traumatizing them, Right. And, and, and the point of sharing this is just that our minds are not <laughs> we, our minds are not cameras and hard drives you know it's not this perfect system where you see something and now it's stored in your memory and if you just think about it you remember it and it, it doesn't work like that there are gaps there are things that that people lock away from themselves right there there, there are all sorts of complications that can come out of, of traumatic events. And, and and so trying to coerce people into giving information through trauma is not, unfortunately, not very effective.
so again, what we're dealing with here is is you know defaulting to truth and and transparency, right? Uh, those are the two kind of overarching larger themes in all of these stories. And the final thing that he talks about is uh, this idea called coupling, which I thought was really interesting. So coupling is is basically the idea of of um, of, of two things being interconnected and 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 I'll just try and explain it with examples. It'll be easier than me trying to explain it as a as a concept or a theory. I think so. So, for example, there was this famous poet named Sylvia Plath. And Sylvia Plath was a very morbid poet. She wrote about, she seemed fascinated by death and and had attempted suicide many times, uh, but always failed, right? And and I, I say that as if she, as if, as if that's bad. The point just being, though, is that Gladwell kind of suspects in his writing that maybe maybe she's not actually this super depressed, suicidal person who's just absolutely hell-bent on it as much as she's fascinated with with this and has kind of romanticized the idea of it, right? Well, so eventually, Sylvia Plath does end up committing suicide. And the way she does it is in... She lives in London, and in London, they have what they call town gas. That is this gas that is used to, to light the furnaces and the ovens and all that. They don't have natural gas set up yet, right? So it's this, instead, it's what's called town gas. And it's this mixture of stuff that they make and and burn and, and it produces the gas and, you know, there it is. So um, it has some, some really significant toxins in it, though, that are not present in natural gas. So what that means is that it, it's actually really, really easy to kill yourself with this town gas by just turning the oven on and sticking your head inside of it for a while, kind of like, kind of like sitting in a car, you know, with the with the hose, which we'll actually get a little more into that in a moment. Um, but that's ultimately how she how she died. She just kind of fell asleep with her head in an oven, and and that was it. And I, and the oven wasn't on like cooking. I mean, it didn't. So she didn't burn or something, right? Well, and so when this is seen, everyone's just like, oh, well, you know, that's it. Sylvia Plath is, you know committed suicide, which is something she's talked about for a long time and been obsessed with for a long time. Well, what's interesting is that if you look at suicide rates in London, when town gas was a thing, the suicide rates go up once town gas becomes a thing. And and they bounce around. I mean, it's not like they're consistent year over year, but, but they're at this higher number. Well, a few years after Sylvia Plath committed suicide... London completely revamped their entire infrastructure and got rid of town gas and replaced it with natural gas, which does not have the same, you know, uh, risks associated with it. And the suicide rates in London plummet along with it. And so Gladwell's point is that our people actually... Yes, they are suicidal, right? In, in in these cases, I mean, it's obviously they they had that inclination, so it's not that they're all romanticizing it or something. That's not his point either, but they had this really, really easy, painless, accessible method that everyone has. And once that method goes away, the rate of suicide also significantly drops. 
And so there's a coupling there. There's a correlation between suicide and the accessibility of these town gas ovens. And it's just statistically, you know, there. It's not it's not deniable. And a lot of people killed themselves that way. Um, another example he uses is the Golden Gate Bridge. For a long time, people have, have advocated that the Golden Gate Bridge, which is a famous place for people to jump off, that they should build a net to catch people, to prevent them from it. And people and, and people who don't like that say, no, that doesn't make any sense. Because if they are suicidal, then they're just going to find another way. So what are we really achieving? Like, what you know, what does it matter? We're, we're not stopping anything. But there was this psychologist who followed up on, on 515 people um, who had tried to jump from the Golden Gate Bridge between 1937 and 1971 and somehow or another had been stopped, Right. So he follows, the psychologist follows up on the, with these people and only 25 of them had, had, had done, had committed suicide in another way. Yes, that is a small sample size, but it's also not like millions of people are jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge annually. Um, and I don't, I mean, it would be challenging, I would think, to try and uh, find and chase down everyone who had, who had maybe been there and attempted it or whatever. But it does, again, imply this notion of coupling, right? Like, jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge is, for whatever reason, people are drawn to do that. But when people that are drawn to do that are denied, they don't find another way, generally. You know? I mean, that's... 25 out of 500 is roughly 5%. I mean, it's a very small percentage of the total that actually still find another way to go through it. So, again, it points to the idea of coupling, he then goes on to this other poet named Anne Sexton, who's actually a contemporary and friend and, and fan of Sylvia Plath, who also is, again, same thing, obsessed with, with morbid stuff, obsessed with death, obsessed with suicide, also tries to commit suicide on multiple occasions and it doesn't succeed. It's always combining, you know, like alcohol and pills and that sort of stuff. Um, she eventually also kills herself. And when she does, it's with, uh, it's in a car in her garage, right? Well, again, within a couple of years after, after her passing, catalytic converters become the standard on automobiles. Well, catalytic converters make it a lot harder to commit suicide in that way, right? So Gladwell's point in both cases with both Sylvia Plath and, and Anne Sexton is that if they had just been 10 years younger, you know, in either case, and been in the same, found themselves in the same position in life, but been 10 years farther along, neither of them would have had access to these very, very easy methods anymore because they weren't around anymore just a little bit into the future. And so it's, it's this idea that things happen sometimes or people act certain ways sometimes because their actions or their behaviors are coupled with very specific circumstances. And we can't always understand those circumstances. His argument isn't that you should be aware of, of all these circumstances, but just further complicating why you can't understand how a person acts sometimes, because sometimes they are acting in a way that they wouldn't in any other circumstance. But because of this very particular arrangement, that's what they're doing. Uh, and one of the final things he looks at is, is Kansas City policing, um, which also explores coupling. So policing, you know, has always been a lot of patrols. Um, and up through the 90s, 
there was just a constant increase in crime generally across the United States. And so police departments are constantly trying to find better methods, better techniques. How do they, how do they reverse this trend? And in Kansas City, there were some guys brought in that actually started looking at the data and found that crime was not spread across Kansas City evenly. And it wasn't even localized to like certain areas of town. It was literally street by street. Like sometimes you could, within a single block, you could have one street that is a nightmare. And then there's a, an intersection on either side of it. And the street on either side of those intersections, no crime, right? Now, I mean, it's not always that. But but crime, the crime is very specific. It's very, very specific areas, right? It's not, it's not just generally in a, a large area. And so when they actually looked into this, what they did was they started assigning additional patrol cars to these very specific areas. Um, like I think I think it was like <laughs> a, a square mile, maybe even less than that. I don't it, something very, very small. And they had these these additional cops pull people over for minor infractions with the idea that perhaps they would identify more, you know, something else, something bigger going on, right? But they only did it from 6 p.m. until, I think, 2 a.m. And they only did it, in, again, in these very, very specific localized areas. And they actually saw a lot of success from it. They actually got recovered a lot of guns, recovered a lot of drugs, and it really did seem to be making an impact. But it's because they were they were really focused on understanding the coupling, right? Not everyone in this area is a is a criminal. Most of them aren't. Instead, it's very specific areas and it's pretty specific time frames, right? They didn't they didn't have these extra police pulling people over in the daytime because they honestly they didn't want to intrude on everyone's liberty because most people don't need to be pulled over all the time. Well, unfortunately, what happened is because of the success in Kansas City, that gets blown out to the nation, right? And police agent, agents all over the country want to to adopt this, but they don't they don't observe the coupling portion of it. Instead, they just see that it's increased patrols and that it's pulling people over for minor things, hoping that you'll find something more significant. Um, and so. <laughs> And so what happens is, is it, it turns the modern police into what we what we now see today, where it's this kind of like weird military almost like um, agency or, or, or institution. Um, and it's very much a, a them against the people kind of thing. And, 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 you know, certainly not everywhere, right? <laughs> you have to couple it. Um, but, but just there's this very adversarial relationship. But it's because... They applied these tactics without without the nuance of it. Something else I talk a lot about on the walk show, <laughs> nuance, um, because they don't they don't do that. And so instead, what happens is like one example he gives is in North Carolina, they do like four hundred, I think it's four hundred thousand, and eh, maybe it's two hundred thousand. I don't know. Whatever, we'll say two hundred because I'm I'm not trying to exaggerate the numbers. And if it's bigger, then it's even more shocking. 
but let's say it's 200,000 traffic stops a year, right? So the next year, they double that. They double it. do another 200,000 traffic stops in North Carolina. And you know what they recover in additionally over the previous year with 200,000 more stops? 20 extra guns. 20. Which is not worth it, right? Like, it's not... <laughs> that's not worth the 200,000 stops. That's the vast majority, the vast, vast majority of those stops were fruitless and, and just served to make people feel invaded and and not trust the police and, and not, you know, not like what's going on, and rightfully so. And so then this wraps all back around, back into the Sandra, the Sandra Blonde case, because we have a situation where the cop thinks that that he that she's not that she is being transparent when she's not right he thinks that something shady's going on and that she's acting a certain way because she's hiding something when really she's not um she's not doing anything wrong <laughs> and and also that this cop is not a bad a bad cop he's actually a cop doing exactly what he's been trained to do which is pull people over for really little stupid stuff and try and hope to find something big which is what he thinks he's doing with this lady right um again i i realize this has been a probably seems like i did a really detailed review even though i said i wasn't going to but i assure you this is not this is not all of the content there is so much more content in the books or in the book um and I, I, I cannot recommend it enough. I, I love Malcolm Gladwell as an author. He's very, very interesting. Uh, he has TED Talks that are fascinating. He's got interviews on YouTube that are fascinating. I, I have consumed every bit of Malcolm Gladwell content that I can. Um, and unfortunately, at the end of this book, you know, he, he, he wasn't able to reach some some simple prescription for how we fix this. It, there, there isn't some like, well, follow these three rules and and everything will be better. Um uh, unfortunately, there, there doesn't seem to be an answer like that. Instead, it's more that that we have to understand that we're never going to fully understand strangers. We'll never understand the absolute truth of, of them. And understand that we do default to truth. And so it is going to happen sometimes where we get deceived. And the consequences of that can be significant. So... It's not that you should ne you should stop defaulting to truth, but you know if something if you have an intuition about something or something is suspicious or, or whatever, you know look into it. And that's okay. Um, and then the other the other thing is that that we're not transparent in the way that we are, and we're not all good at, at at reading body language. It's so amusing to me after reading this. Again, how the common person thinks that they're super good at reading body language, when in fact judges and CIA people are not good at it. So if they don't can't do it effectively, and that's what their lives are committed to, then why would Joe Blow on the street be able to do it? It's uh, yeah, it 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 it's ridiculous. Um, but it can lead to some really serious consequences if you think that you're you're a body language expert or that you're. I mean, there used to be this show for I don't know a decade ago called Lie to Me, um, where the the protagonist of the show had the ability to read micro facial expressions, so he would he would always be able to tell if someone was lying or not. 
and they anyone else couldn't tell, but he could because he could read these tiny little micro muscle twitches that that the person was involuntarily doing, but that very much illustrated you know what they were what their real intent was. And it it's just all bogus. It's not since because people are not trained actors. People are not always transparent. Um, and then again, finally, that you know, coupling is a real thing, and that people in some situations behave in ways that they never otherwise would, except that it's tied to whatever particular event or place or circumstance or situation or scenario, whatever it is they find themselves in. And so instead, you know, his prescription is just that we have to. We have to be cautious, and we have to be empathetic, and we have to understand that we shouldn't fully buy in to any perception of a stranger, because you just don't ultimately know what that stranger's truth is. folks well that is going to do it for today's show thank you so much for listening and as always thank you again so much to misha for providing the music again the book is called talking to strangers by malcolm gladwell uh you can get it again in print or you can also get the audiobook which i personally have not listened to but here is awesome um also i will say if you have not been out to the walkshowpodcast.com in some time i invite you to go check that out the walkshowpodcast.com has been revamped and revitalized And I probably should have mentioned it in the intro, so maybe next week. Either way, thanks for listening. Stay up. Have a good week. (laughs) 